0: Hey there, I'm Mike. Some of you know me from the Twisted Cape. Some of you know me because I put on for my city, on, on for my city. But regardless of how you know me, you know I love comics, and that's what we talk about on this podcast! Welcome, welcome, welcome to Mike's Big Stack. Aw, hell! Hi, my thickies, welcome to the show everyone, recording this week at the Department of Thickness Defense. An announcement before we get to the city shoutouts, starting in the first week of October, I'll be launching Mike's Thick Stacks Books of the Week, a video series. I'll be dropping videos of the Marvel and DC Book of the Week on YouTube, and they'll typically be a three to five minute long uh, video, unless there's a lot of like, co-books of the week like there are this week. It's going to be awesome and I can't wait to get started. Next, make sure you follow us on Twitch and watch me play Marvel's Avengers and soon some other superhero video games, probably Batman. The link to the Twitch channel is in our show notes. Another big announcement is coming at the end of the show, so stay tuned. Now, here come your city shout-outs for this week. Up first, we're feeling the love from Seal, Alabama. Aspen, Virginia, you are incredible, and we love you. Hello, hello to our friends in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Welcome, to our new listeners in Zolotynosia, Ukraine, and finally, what up Willow Grove, Pennsylvania? As always, we start by rating the thickness of my stack. So give me a little shimmy as we check out Mike's thickometer. Oh yeah, Mike's thickometer. Thick like the slime you just created. This week clocks in at eight out of ten on Mike's thickometer. I mean, that's thick. Damn, that's thick. I just gave it a second and third glance. In case you're, th- you're curious, this week the stack has a DC lean. We begin this week with the Marvel books, starting with Daredevil number 22. I gave this a three and a half out of five. This book is usually can't miss, but this issue slows the pace down a little bit. Daredevil is going through the booking process at the police station at the beginning of the issue as Foggy, as his lawyer, seeks to make sure his rights aren't violated. Like, no gloves, no mask off, it's, it's perfect. At a press conference, the DA answers questions from the press, and he's quickly pushed out of the way in lieu of Wilson Fisk, who hijacks the press conference railing against superheroes. Daredevil is set free on bail and goes back to work on the streets, breaking up a gun-running operation as Iron Man shows up, destroys the guns, and invites Daredevil back to his place. Meanwhile, Fisk goes to a church where Typhoid Mary is, and she gives a cool little speech about control and how both her and Fisk love to have control. She leaves the church and says that she'll be in touch. At Iron Man's pad, Daredevil asks Tony Stark to buy Hell's Kitchen out from under the Strom ones and give the people their homes back. As Tony considers it, he offers Daredevil an upgrade for dealing with stronger foes. I expect this to be fully in play later on. Wilson Fisk works on rallying the underworld for his own purposes, as it seems. Financial, I'm sure. Meanwhile, Matt and Foggy have a strategy session, and they're joined by Matt's ex-girlfriend, much to Matt's dismay, Kirsten McDuffie. This issue was good, but it seems like it's just the beginning, despite being the second issue in this story arc. It's definitely a slow burn story, but I imagine when it explodes, it'll explode like it did a few issues ago. For once, I wasn't a huge fan of the art in this book. It actually held back the story at points in my mind. I feel like it could be better as the story develops. However, I'm not sold on it at this point. Next up, we have Fantastic Four Antithesis number two. I gave this a three and a half out of five. This story was wild. It starts with Silver Surfer recounting how Galactus was quote unquote killed by Antithesis. Turns out he was just depowered and banished to the negative zone, which excites me for reasons that definitely happened in this issue. Antithesis overrode the bodies of people on a planet and made them his mindless army. Noren came to the Fantastic Four because Antithesis is heading towards Earth, obviously. Again, a strength of this book is how Mr. Fantastic is not some all-knowing figure, and Sue puts him in his place when he attempts to leave her behind to, quote, protect her. Interestingly, he acknowledges how forgetful he's become lately, making me think that that will be a story point later. They go to the negative zone using the Silver Surfer as a tether to their world and go to rescue Galen. As soon as they do, they're immediately confronted by Annihilus, which is why I, I was so excited. They have a huge battle with Annihilus and he knocks Silver Surfer out of the negative zone. The Fantastic Four continues their battle slash protection, I guess, of Galen while Silver Surfer zooms off to aid the team. Just as Annihilus is about to get gain the upper hand... The tether reappears, pulling them free of Annihilus' grasp. However, they come back to the universe on Galactus' starship. I love how much of a classic feel this story has. I'm just still really iffy on the art style here. Again, Ben Grimm's face just doesn't sit right in my brain. It's just awful to me. Next up, we have Immortal She-Hulk number 1. I gave this a 4 out of 5. This is a co-Marvel book of the week. This book includes Jen Walters and her relationship with Death and the Hulk, specifically the Green Door and how it was unlocked for her. There seems to be a running theme with the character uh, as the one below all, which is seemingly kind of confirmed in this particular issue. She recounts most of her time being a Hulk and, and Death throughout most of the issue. Three times, really. She talks with Wolverine over a beer about death resurrection and how to process it and logan says that as long as she came back the same it doesn't really matter and just let it go jen recounts being killed by thanos back in civil war 2 for all you long time readers and her time before going through the green door with her uncle brian bruce's dad who's a piece of shit and that is not a good conversation at all he's mad creepy meanwhile jen is training back in present time and talks to thor as hulk about being immortal Thor talks about immortal beings eventually dying and how he killed Galactus back in Thor number 6 only a couple issues ago. We flash to Jen being killed by the Kotadi in Empire and waking up in the death area and being confronted by the leader. He explains that he learned how to change the locks on the green door and that she's not really immortal and neither is Bruce. As she goes to live again, he warns her to never, ever die again, which sticks with her and seemingly traumatizes her and Hulk. This book has an unsettling feel, despite not being handled by the immortal Hulk artist, which sell a lot. Al Ewing does a great job with Jen in this story, and John Davis Hunt's art in this book is incredible. I'm incredibly excited to see where this goes. This book cuts to the core of a struggle that these characters who die and reborn again should be going through, while also making it a sinister revelation. I love this. Okay, next up on the docket, we have Spider-Man number four. I gave this a two out of five. I gotta be honest, I forgot about this book completely (laughs) due to delays and the lack of it coming out. This follows Ben as he struggles with the Spider-Man mantle and trying to rescue his dad from cadavers who killed his mom while also attempting to protect Tony Stark from a bunch of zombie Avengers. Alongside Ironheart, they win against the zombie Avengers and Ben is lured to a bridge by a giant spider to take his dad. Pete tells Ben to run, who says, I'll be alright, and is immediately knocked out and taken. This book is a hot mess. I didn't enjoy it at all, and the frequency of release really hurts this book. Maybe it'll get better, but it's only got one issue left, and I kind of can't wait to be done with it. Next up, we have Spider-Woman number four. I gave this a three out of five. This book has developed so quickly, and it's been a fun read. Uh, so it starts out with Jess getting the lowdown from her mom about how she survived, despite being thought dead. Spoiler, it was a clone. Her mom reveals that she's been watching her through her suit, which explains who paid for it back in the first issue. This is an emotionally draining issue for Jess, who also finds out that she's younger than her younger brother somehow. Anyway, Octavia interrupts this familial insanity, looking to take down Miriam. A giant battle ensues with robots and cannons, really allowing the spider family here to unleash octavia corners them in the facility after they fall back and just steps between miriam and octavia only to be pushed in front of a bunch of soldiers by her mom as they fire bullets a cool thing that i did notice throughout this issue is the design of her spider symbol in the panels throughout the book and even the bullets at the end of the book are being shot at her in the shape of her spider symbol the story is nuts in a fun but nonsensical way Who knows what to expect from this story moving on. It's fun, but it's absolutely ridiculous. All right. Next up, we have X of Swords creation number one. I give this a four and a half out of five. This is a co-Marvel book of the week. This book has so much. I love that this is the official start of this event. The necessary part of this is that you really need to be following the X line to truly appreciate this event. No worries. There's an announcement about that coming up later. The book opens on Otherworld with the Watchtower being stormed by the Four Horsemen and their forces. The Cursed King sends word to Saturnine via Squire, but as he flees, he's impaled. He makes it there in time to alert that Araco has fallen before he dies, and Saturnine goes to cards for answers. She gets the cards created and reads five cards immediately. Judgment, Four of Wands, Hanged Man, Eight of Cups, and Ten of Swords. Seems to be some foreshadowing and teasing going on here. Back on Krakoa, Summoner appears with Banshee in his arms coming through the gate, the external gate that is, saying that he is dying. He's rushed to the healers and Summoner is set to go with his grandfather, Apocalypse, to the Quiet Council. They explain what's going on and more about Apocalypse building the external gate. Summoner explains what happens and how Banshee fell and how Unus the Untouchable has been taken and the quiet council attempts to build a rescue party they even debate closing the external gate but krakoa interrupts the meeting and says that that gate will stay open reminding them that hey motherfuckers your guests here and that land is me and i'm it volunteers come for the rescue mission and an eclectic group of mutants really shows up havoc polaris siren beast angel and monet all follow apocalypse and summoner into the gate Meanwhile, Cable and Rachel Summers look at Banshee's mind because his mind is screaming out despite the fact that he's supposed to be healing. On Otherworld, the mutants see the siege that is happening and they see Unus as a prisoner. Apocalypse identifies the horsemen as his children and he goes to see them. Meanwhile, Banshee's memories show something is wrong with that initial trip. Apocalypse goes to see his children and expresses remorse and sadness for their mother being destroyed and he's immediately run through... By sword, a fire sword it looks like, and attacked. As the mutants spring into action, it's uncovered that in Banshee's mind, that Summoner is a traitor and is working with the Horsemen. Rachel and Cable get a message from Saturnine that they're looking for the wrong thing and to go find the right thing. They go to their parents for help, and fortunately, Cyclops helps them find exactly what they need. It looks like a giant ball. Saturnine is above the fray back on Otherworld, looking down as the carnage unfolds. There are casualties, though. Summer uses a sword to slice right through Rockslide, cutting him in half, and Apocalypse has already been gravely injured as they retreat. Polaris and Havoc shake the tower, which makes Saturnine come down from her tower and freeze the battlefield, which shows how unbelievably powerful she is. She commits to a battle in three days' time with her champions for the fate of of Araco, as the Summers family reactivates a space bridge that goes to S.W.O.R.D., the agency that seems poised to be making a comeback. I know that's a lot. This story did cover so much ground, and it was an excellent kickoff to what is already an incredibly rich story. I love the thick lines in the art throughout the book, and the big moments are massive. The small moments also speak volumes as well, which is pivotal for an artist in an event like this. Since I've been reading a lot of Xbox in the last 2 weeks, this is so impactful. If you've been reading, I'd highly recommend you go back and reread all the stuff that's been released up until now or just stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break, then we're going to drop these DC titles and then some announcements as we wrap up the show. See you soon. <laughs> Hey guys, this is Jesse at The Twisted Cape. We just wanted to take a moment to thank all of you amazing listeners of both The Twistcast and Mike's Thick Stack for your support over all these years. Just a friendly reminder to subscribe to our shows on your favorite podcasting platform because we're everywhere. Also, don't forget to like and rate The Twistcast wherever you listen. We do love our five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Don't forget to tell us what you like about the show in your review as well. And now, back to the show. Oh yeah, we're back. Okay, let's jump into these DC books We'll do it together and it'll be fun, starting with Action Comics, number 1025. I gave this a 3.5 out of 5. I definitely like this book better than the normal Superman title. The book is stronger in basically every way. The book opens with a flashback from Marisol León and the beginnings of how she got to be where she is, while on what seems to be Earth-3, based off of the art? I'm not sure. Meanwhile, back in present day, the K-Squad, Clark, Connor, John, and Kara are closing in on Leon and Red Cloud. Meanwhile, Dr. Glory, from their Young Justice title, and Red Cloud join forces as Dr. Glory unleashes her emergency backup plan against the K-Squad, a being that's really similar to a powered-up parasite. The Daily Planet is dealing with the FBI raiding as Clark sends a story in that he typed at super speed. Leon shows up threatening to prove that Lois is not from this Earth. She's from another Earth as the fight with the powered-up parasite creature crashes into the planet. Connor has seemingly been drained and unceremoniously dumped on the roof as Leon grabs Lois and says, My house. This title has felt more consequential than anything really done in the Superman book, which is great. Again, I'm a fan of John Romita's art, but I know others may not be. I'm actually quite intrigued by the way this story is developing, and I hope the payoff here is as good as I think it might be. That's a weird sentence, but I understand. Alright, moving on to Batgirl number 49, I gave this a a 3.5 out of 5. DC released quite a few emotional titles this week, and I didn't really expect this to be one of them. This is the penultimate issue of this series, in case you didn't know. This story is equal parts family drama and detective story. Barbara is running down a shadowy killer that we as readers get some sneak peeks at, but we don't know who it is, uh, who is killing some red-headed women and then dressing them like Batgirl. Barb has a tense exchange with her dad, and her brother watches from afar in the rain when his darker side seems to resurface. Babs trains as she works over the case details in her mind and finds a pattern both with the women that have been killed and the dump locations of the bodies. She goes to a place that she thinks is the killer's home and finds her brother, and he explains that he's also been working the case to keep the person from getting to her. She tells him to stay home and leaves. Meanwhile, the former commissioner goes to the same lighthouse that Babs was going to and sees James just as Batgirl arrives. James's personalities have a struggle when Batgirl shows up. Babs has a sedative to bring him down, and because James loves his sister and realizes something's wrong, he jumps off of the lighthouse as she gets closer to him. Jim Gordon and Batgirl meet over the body as Jim attempts to arrest what's unknowingly his daughter. Bab runs away and vows to quit as she cries over the loss of her brother while realizing their complicated relationship. This book was quite the roller coaster. I love the art in this book because it fits the story so well. The scratchy line of work is such a great look for this strangely grim book. It seems like this is a final appearance of the Troubled Gordon, and it was oddly a bit more sad than I anticipated. I have a feeling that this could end with Babs hanging up the Batgirl lifestyle for a bit. Moving on to Batman Superman number 12. I gave this a 3 out of 5. This book was fun because Batman and Superman take a back seat kind of in this issue to Batwoman and Steel. There's a distressing scene as the Batcave has been torn apart, and Steel and Batwoman are really going through piecing together what has happened. Via recording, Batman tells the story of how he and Superman put together software to track enemies and killers so they could stop them before they would strike. The duo fights Camo at a volcano, and the device they bring back to the Batcave turns everything in the cave into a hostile enemy. The dinosaur, the Batmobile, the Batplane, everything. They discover Brainiac may be behind this, and they've gone to the moon. The message breaks up, and it turns out that Batman was warning everyone to stay away from the moon. Batman and Superman are being held captive by Brainiac, and being forced to fight robot versions of their enemies. As a story, it's maybe just okay... And we'll see how the rest of the story develops. It looks really good though, but there's nothing really distinctive about the art style here. This is a book that I would like to see some artistic risks taken with colors, designs, whatever, but it still works. The next book we're going to take a look at is Dark Knight's Death Metal Speed Metal number one. Super long ass fucking name. I gave this a 4 out of 5. This is the Code DC book of the week. Just a warning this is best read after reading Flash number 762 and Death Metal number 3. There's kind of an info dump at the beginning of the story that briefly explains how we got here. The speedsters, Jay, Barry, Wally, and Wallace, are running from the Batman who laughs, aka the Darkest Knight, when he unleashes a horde of dark flashes against the heroes. Wally uses the speed force formula to stop time and allow them to develop a plan. Barry and Wally get into it, which Jay shuts down immediately. The use of the speed force formula burns out, and they follow Wally's plan to run back at the Horde toward the Mobius chair. One by one, the Flashes fall behind, and Barry gives his power to Wally, who makes it to the chair. Wally falls through the Speed Force, seemingly lost again, but he finds the rest of the Flash family waiting in the Speed Force. The team assembles again, set to use the Mobius chair and the anti anti-crisis energy to turn the tide. I like this story a lot. Josh Williamson clearly loves Wally and reestablishes him as a central figure in the DCU again. The artwork really works here, particularly the constant redesigns and costumes that go all the way throughout this title. The art makes this book exciting. I love the heart in this story as well, specifically Barry and Wally at its core. It's got a mentor-mentee or brother-style relationship. Well, it is a big Flash week because next we have Flash 762. I gave this a 4 out of 5. This is my other DC book of the week. This story ends Josh Williamson's flash run. At the core, Barry is fighting Eobard Thawne in the Speed Force, but Barry realizes he needs to do something different to stop this struggle from being so eternal. Barry forgives Thawne, realizing that he can't keep the hate that has driven this rivalry. Thawne attacks Barry, and Barry gives some of his Speed Force to Thawne, which resets him, giving him a fresh start, causing him to disappear through time. Back in the 25th century, Thawne is giving tours at the Flash Museum, and we see Reverse Flash, but his identity is unknown. Barry goes through time setting things back to how it should be, but something is bothering him. The how Thawne kept Barry from investigating bothered him so much that he goes back there and finds a pregnant woman whose husband's last name is Thawne. That makes some sense there. Barry goes to a Flash family barbecue and gets a call from the League, which sets off the events for Death Metal slash Speed Metal. Before he leaves, he has a conversation with his mom in his head, which is kind of nice. He runs off seemingly back to the bright, optimistic Barry that we need. While this book is a bow on what Josh Williamson has done with the character, it's really his love letter to the character. The art is kinetic and something a little different than what we're used to on this book, but it works and doesn't really detract from the story, and even enhances it at times. I love this ending for Barry, and I can't wait to see how the title changes under a new creative team. Finally here, we have Justice League Dark, 26. I give this 3.5 out of 5. This book puts the team back together against the Upside Down Man, and has a surprise at the end. Detective Chimp finds John in the clutches of Madame Xanadu at the end of last issue, and starts there again in this issue. He rescues him after having his fortune told. Bobo rallies Man-Bat and Dr. Fate as they go to rescue Zatanna and Diana who are engaged in battle rescuing Zatara. Swamp Thing briefly overpowers Upside Down Man as Zatanna and Diana work to bring down Upside Down Man alongside Swamp Thing. He unleashes a powerful blast at them, but they're rescued by Dr. Fate and the rest of the Justice League Dark. Constantine spends a bit of time antagonizing Upside Down Man, like Constantine does, and steps out of Dr. Fate's protection and is shot with magic by the Upside Down Man. As Zatanna cradles John in her arms, he seemingly dies with a smile on his face as Upside Down Man asks where is the belief that John has been touting throughout the course of this issue. I'm really curious about where this will end because John clearly had some ulterior motive. I feel like the first half of the story was kind of scattered, but the back half really stuck the landing. But I really don't like this type of inconsistency in the stories that I read personally. The art here, however, is an absolute delight. There's such great detail in the splash pages that makes it incredible. I'm hoping that next issue gets back to being really good. This book and Justice League Odyssey were outdoing the main Justice League book to me for quite some time, but this book has slid down in quality a bit in my mind. We'd normally have Suicide Squad number 9 here, but I'm still working my way through that. So as we start to wrap up, remember, if you want to be on the show, hit me up on Twitter, at SpiderMike29. Looking ahead, it's a big week next week. I'm excited for this. We have, on the DC side, Three Jokers. We have Death Metal Multiverse's End. And we have Batman Superman Annual number 1. On the Marvel side, I look forward to this a lot. Uh, We have Avengers 36, which is uh, probably a banger. We have Savage Avengers number 12, and Shang-Chi number 1. I'm looking forward to all of those. Just so you guys know, our YouTube is about to blow up. Between Avengers streams, Mike's Thick Stack, Books of the Week, and our weekly Wednesday shows, there's about to be a ton of can't-miss content from the Twisted Cape. Make sure you're subscribed. Last announcement, starting in October, I'll be dropping bonus episodes on Wednesdays for about six straight weeks, and they'll be catch-up shows. Initially, I'm going to focus on X-Men so you guys don't feel lost when it comes to x swords Then it'll be Suicide Squad and Green Lantern. I can't wait for you guys to get in on this. That is all the time we have for this week. Of course, make sure you subscribe to The Twisted Cape on your favorite podcast platform or listen straight from thetwistedcape.com. We're at The Twisted Cape, no spaces on every social media platform. Facebook, the Gram, Twitter, YouTube. Make sure you tune in to that weekly Wednesday show that I talked about on our Facebook or our YouTube and live in them comments. We go over them during and at the end of each show. Finally, feel free to shoot us feedback on this show to thetwistedcape at gmail.com and make sure you use the subject line MTS. Thanks for tuning in. So until next time, y'all sing happy birthday, yeah, I got that super cake, 100-carat bracelet, I use it like some super baby. Stay safe, wear a mask, stay twisted.